Welcome to another edition of the TDN Writers Room. My name is Bill Finley. I'm a correspondent for the TDN. Also co-host the Down the Stretch Show on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning. What's up, y'all? I'm Randy Moss with NBC Sports. Got a little different vantage point here. Lucy's over here, racked to my left. Sorry, you can't Mm -hmm. see her, but uh, ready to roll. What's up, y'all? Randy's getting cool. (laughs) I'm Zoe Kavman with First Racing and XBTV. My dog is nowhere to be seen. I think he's under the bed. So, Randy, you always check in from Minnesota. Is it like minus 60 degrees there today? It was really nice for quite a while. As a matter of fact, it was the warmest December since they started keeping records in the 1800s. And now Mm -hmm. we're kind of back to normal. It was 10 below the other day. It was below zero for a high. Right now, it's like zero. My Internet's all screwed up. I've been arguing with the Internet guy. I'm all (laughs) out of sorts here, but ready to roll. Okay. Well, of course, Randy would go back to the 1800s just oh, for yeah. the weather as well. <laughs> right. I mean, it already started. And by the way, I can say, hey, y'all, and it's natural because I'm from Arkansas. I'm allowed to, I, okay. I'm allowed to say that, right? Okay. All right. No real major races over last weekend, but there were some interesting performances and in horses that I think that we're going to be keeping an eye on as we uh, the races get going and get uh, progressing towards the spring. And a Conquest Warrior named a TDN Rising Star after winning the ninth race at Gulfstream on Saturday. A Colt by City of Light cost $1 million at Keeneland September, trained by Shug McGahee. Uh, he didn't blow the field apart, but what a trip he had. This is from the Equibase chart. This is what the chart caller had to say. Conquest Warrior pinched back by foes on both sides at the start, laid off the pace in the three path, waited for room while advancing in the two path around the turn, had to steady slightly turning into the lane, angled out to the eight path after passing uh, the eighth pole and rallied to be up in closing stages. Be really interesting to see Shug McGahey come up with another really good three-year-old. He's won the Derby once with Orb. Uh, he said he's in no hurry. He's not going to rush the horse into, say, the Holy Bull. An allowance race will possibly be next, and then maybe if he wins that, maybe something like the Fountain of Youth. But uh, guys, uh, certainly a horse to keep an eye on. $1 million purchase, trained by a great Hall of Fame trainer. Um, I certainly want to see what he does down the road. I'll go first. Ladies first. Here we go. Uh, He was good. It was visually impressive. The time, perhaps not the most sparkling, but it is tough to close into a slow pace. They went 24 for the quarter. I think they finished up in 138.57, got it written down. The second rising star in two weeks for City of Light since the Randy should have been DQ'd Crimson Light last weekend. (laughs) So that's the second one. And you know who he's bred by? In part, DJ Stable, Len Green, here to save you money with the Green Group. Saving you money on taxes. He's a breeder on this one with a couple of other people, including Needham and Betts. Very, very impressive. Really impressive. Battle-tested. Yeah, I mean, obviously you wouldn't be surprised to see the horse go on and progress. He's got the right teacher and Shook McGahee. Uh, I'm not prepared yet to even put him like in my top five or six or seven or eight 
uh, Kentucky Derby contenders at this point, and here's why. Uh, yes, he got a trip that was, uh, you know, it, it was obvious when you watched the start, especially if you watched the head-on. Um, he was squeezed back, leaving the gate. But here's the thing. He kind of did it to himself, okay? This is the second, this was the second career start for Conquest Warrior, and he broke a little slowly both times. And as we all know, when horses break a little slowly from the gate, and they lose their spot, they tend to get pinched back a little bit when the horses on either side of them close in on that open space and then they wind up shooting out the back end. Uh, he doesn't have any early speed looking at his very first start at Aqueduct when he ran against a very, very fast uh, two-year-old sprinter from Rick Dutro's barn. Uh, and his final, his closing quarter in the race at Gulfstream, the track wasn't extremely fast. He closed in tw a little over 26 seconds. Uh, you would like to see him come home even a little faster than he did. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I and, and also about the pace. Um, this is something to keep in mind. Anybody who's handicapping Gulfstream Park races right now, they have changed the way they time one-mile races at Gulfstream Park, okay? Even back, you know, when they very first redid the racetrack at Gulfstream and they started running a one-turn mile, the run-up was extremely short because there's no room way back there in the back of the chute going a mile. But the timing became so problematic of the one-mile races that last November, Equibase changed the way those races were timed. And now it's timed from the gate, just like they do in Europe and elsewhere, with zero run-up. As soon as the gate completely opens up, the timing begins, even before the horses leave the starting gate. So you're going to have extremely slow opening fractions in Gulfstream Park one-mile races. This one was 24 flat, but it's misleading because they went to half and 46 and change. So I think he actually had some pace in front of him. Promising debut, but I want to see more. Well, a horse that we talk about every single time he runs, and I can't talk about this horse enough, Zoe. The Chosen Vron, once again, you know, look, he's, he's not the best sprinter in, in the country. He finished fifth in the Breeders' Cup sprint. But, you know, everybody loves these blue-collar horses. And he did it again in the Cal Cup sprint last Saturday. It was his 15th win from 20 starts. 14 of them are stakes races. Uh, he's won eight straight versus Calbreds. He's a gelding. He's going to be around for a while. Uh, Zoe, what kind of fan favorite has he turned into out your way? He's such a cool dude. I mean, he really, really is. And full credit going to Ian Crueljack. Eric Crueljack, excuse me, that's the dad, um, for giving him the time when he needed last year. I can remember him coming into the paddock and looking at him, and he won by a nose that day and thinking, God, that just doesn't look good, but he won in spite of it. And Eric knew that he wasn't on the top of his game and put him on the shelf for a couple of months, gave him the time he needed, and he came back with a plum. Like, he's just a really cool horse. And, you know, looking back through his stats – he broke his maiden first out as a favorite with Johnny V aboard by six and a half lengths. Now, you don't often see Johnny V riding for Eric Crueljack, so they knew this horse was a good one from the get-go. It's just a really cool story. John and Dorita Sondreka at all and the other owners own this guy, and he's their baby, and he just keeps going and going and going. Long may he carry on. Yeah, this the story behind the horse yeah. is just is just so cool. I mean, the owners were involved in the mare. It was a mare named Tiz Molly, yeah. 
And I think they paid 35000 for her or something like that. And she started her career with a couple of big wins. I think her second win, she got an 85 buyer speed figure. They got a lot of big money offers for her at that time. She was a Kentucky bred. They chose not to sell. And four races later, she suffers a career-ending injury. They were not in the breeding business at all. But three of the four partners, including Eric Kruljak, decided to make her into a broodmare. And in Kruljak's words, we'll play the breeding lottery, right? The, <laughs> the first foal couldn't run at all, right? The second foal could run very little, was a claiming horse. So they decided to put Tiz Molly into a sale and just get rid of her. The top bid was $1,200. At that point, the chosen Vron had just turned into his yearling year. He was by a $3,500 stud. Uh, they didn't know how good he was going to be, but $1,200, I mean, that was insulting. So they decided to hang on to the mare, and lo and behold, you know, here's the chosen Vron earning over a million dollars in his career and being an absolute winning machine. Uh, the two subsequent foals out of the mare haven't even raced. But they've still at least got her, I think, Tiz Molly. And it's just a great story all the way around. And Eric Kruljak, a former private investigator, he's a great story as well. But what a good job he's done with uh, with the chosen front. Well, maybe you guys don't care about the um, Pasco stakes at Tampa Bay Downs, but I do. And here's why. I'm a New Jersey guy and I'm the number one shill in the country for New Jersey breads. And we got a good one, and I love this horse's name, the coolest name, Bookham Dano. Won the Pasco by 12 and a half lengths. He's a newly turned three-year-old, got an 86 buyer. And Randy, uh, they don't have derby fever. Matter of fact, they said they have no intentions whatsoever of looking at the derby. Instead, they're going to the Saudi yes. Derby in February with a $1.5 million purse. And uh, it would just be a cool thing for the poor state of New Jersey, where the fall crop is so small every year because there's so little racing in the state to produce a horse that would win a race like that. I'm a fan of this horse and I'll be rooting for him. So they do have derby fever. They just have Saudi derby. Saudi Derby fever, that's right. Fever, right? And it's a perfect setup for them if he makes the trip okay and all that, because I think it's a one-turn mile, this, uh, the Saudi Derby, for a million and a half dollars. Uh, you know, it's kind of a quirky racetrack surface. But, yeah, I mean, the horse is obviously extremely talented. At, you know, the race at, at Tampa, the Pasco, was, turned out to be a terrible field behind him. I mean, West Saratoga was in there who had won a graded stakes at Churchill, but he didn't really show up. He got a pretty good trip and didn't really show up. And so there's really nothing running at him at all. But um, and the, and the horse has kind of funky action as well, but he just gets the job done. And, you know, as a sprinter, he has been uh, he's been pretty, pretty impressive. $15,000 as a yearling. You know, Bookham Dano, there have been four horses since 1983 that have actually been called Bookham Dano. That's from Hawaii. A lot of Hawaii Fago, right? Five O fans out yeah. there, huh? Yeah, so four already. And I thought the most interesting comment came from trainer Derek Ryan saying he had absolutely no interest in going to the Derby. Been there after what happened last time. Well, he was third last time with Yonaguska. So, I mean, he ran well. He was third in the Preakness too. I can't understand that, but he knows his horse, knows where he wants to go, got no interest whatsoever in going to Churchill Downs. So I am absolutely rooting for Bookham Dana. So, Bill, Zo Zoe teases me for going down a rabbit hole. She has looked up the history of the name Bookham Dano. 
That's yeah, like that's, that's like the ultimate good. rabbit hole to go down. Right? <laughs> yeah, Zoe, you're giving Randy a, a <laughs> one for his money. Just next challenge is to somehow bring Oliver Wendell Holmes into uh, one of your answers. So, oh, anyways. Well, We'll be watching Bookham Dano. Uh, good luck to him as he heads off to Saudi Arabia. By the way, the TDN Writers Room is brought to you by Keeneland. Well, the Keeneland January sale is in the books, and now it's time to look forward to April. The 2024 April Horses of Racing Age sale will be held Friday, April 26th, after the race is on closing day of the spring meet. And tickets go on sale February 20th for the Keeneland Spring Meet, which runs from April 5 to the 26th. We'll be right back after this message from Keeneland. Keeneland, a horse will always be measured in hands. Hands that see, that sense, that speak. Hands that hold our sport to a higher standard. Not for our sake, but for theirs. For the love of the horse, for generations to come. The TD Writers Room, brought to you as always by the Fast Sires of Windstar Farm, the sponsor of our weekly Fastest Horse of the Week, Spotlight Sire this week, no surprise. It's Constitution. What a week he had. First of all, he was named the gold medal winner in TDN's popular Value Sires column. Chris McGrath wrote, Taffet has arranged quite a race for the eventual succession, but for now, Constitution appears to be the heir to catch. And breeder Paul Manganaro said, to have access to Constitution at his stud fee, is like stealing. Also, Constitution, the only sire with three Colts on the current TD and Derby Top 12. They would be Rising Stars Born Noble and Parchment Part, along with Catching Freedom. Constitution, that bargain that Paul Manganero was talking about, he stands at One Star Farm for $110,000. Now, the fastest horse of the weekend, we've already talked about him. The Chosen Braun from his win in the Cal Cup Sprint, over, by the way, a very fast horse in Brickyard Ride. Yeah, 99 buyer speed figure for the Chosen Braun in that race tops the week. His last five buyer speed figures now. Talk about consistency. 98, 96, 98, 100, and now the 99. Well, there was some interesting news out of Churchill Downs this week, and I think pretty welcome news. Um, the Kentucky Derby purse was raised to $5 million. It was three, which is a big purse, but uh, a lot of people, myself included, thought that not only the uh, Derby, but the Triple Crown purses as a whole needed to be ra uh, raised. If they're supposed to be the most important races we run, you should have the purses reflect as much. Um, the Preakness right now is at $1.5 million. That's the same purse as the Arkansas Derby, uh, a Kentucky Derby prep. Churchill Downs has so much money, they might as well have raised the purse to $50 million. But I'm glad to see they did it. But I also think that uh, Belmont and whoever uh, is going to run the Preakness or run Pimico in the future should look to do this same thing. These are the most important races. Let's not have a system where they've got the 18th and 19th best purses out there. Belmont, by the way, though, did raise their purse for the Belmont coming up this year in Saratoga to $2 million. So we're heading in the right direction. But with all that money out there, um, come on, tracks, let's pay up. Good job by Churchill Downs making it $5 million. If you go back and look at the history of the purses of the three Triple Crown races, typically the Preakness sort of reacts to the Belmont Stakes. When they raise the purse for the Belmont Stakes, they'll in turn raise the purse for the Preakness. So we'll see what happens there. I, I got to tell you, I mean, you know, kudos to CDI 
for raising the purse of the Kentucky Derby because they didn't have to. Uh, you know, horsemen don't run in the Kentucky Derby because of the purse. They run in the Kentucky Derby, obviously, because of the tradition of the race, what it does, uh, you know, just for the reputation of the people that win it. Needless to say, the stallion prospects also uh, are greatly enhanced by a win in the Kentucky Derby. So, I mean, $3 million was just fine as far as Churchill Downs was concerned, I would think. I'm not sure I would have done it if I was in charge of CDI. Uh, I might have put that $2 million somewhere else, but I mean, more power to them. I mean, the purses at Kentucky are just astronomical all the way across the board. Um, and $5 million for the Kentucky Derby is a nice, uh, nice round number, Zoe. It's not often we're applauding Churchill Downs on this podcast, but that was very well done by them. Personally, I think all three of them should be five million. We need incentive for people to run in the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes. But hey, what about the girls? What about the girls? The Oaks is 1.5. The Oaks should be three million. If they raise the Derby to five, the Oaks should be three, in my personal opinion. I mean, why isn't that important? Come on, guys. I to totally agree. Um, uh, the um, purses for those races need to be raised uh, as well. Well, after uh, you just said nice things about Churchill Downs, Zoe, I bet you're not going to say nice things about this. <laughs> Here we go again. Uh, another move uh, to uh, stymie Bob Baffert's efforts to uh, not only win the Kentucky Derby, but to be able to be the trainer of horses that are eyeing the Kentucky Derby. Uh, they came out in the, um, I don't know where the hell they, 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 they didn't put out a press release or anything like that, but it may be in the condition book that for uh, any horses trained by a band trainer, which is Baffert and Baffert alone, they must be moved to a new trainer by January 29th or else they cannot run in the Kentucky Derby. Uh, we are recording this on a Wednesday. It's 12 days from now. But once again, we have, they make a rule for Baffert and then they, with you know, the what we say is appropriate, they move the goalposts. This is 30 days earlier than last year. So he's got to do some, a lot of reshuffling the deck. Uh, nobody's heard from Baffert so far as I know about what his plans are, Zoe, but, uh, I assume it'll be the same thing, Tim Yakteen, but come on, Churchill. I mean, enough is enough. Enough was enough five decisions ago. Uh, and now they do one more thing to him. And, um, you know, I, I think you've said before, Zoe, you're not sure they're ever going to let him back in the Kentucky Derby. I, I don't know about that, but, um, you know, they, they need to give the guy a, a break at this point. It's personal. I mean, that is the heads and tails of it. It's a personal <clears throat> vendetta against Bob, Bob Baffert. He served his time, whether you think he was guilty or innocent of anything. He's done with that. They are squarely moving the goalposts, and that's not fair. I'll, I'll tell you where I believe those horses are going in 12 days' time. Nowhere. I think they're going to stay in the barn of Bob Baffert and run in the Preakness and the Belmont and the and uh, the Travers and the Pacific Classic. That's what I think. And if I was Bob, that's what I would be doing. Zoe, have you have you heard any nope. uh, rumblings about that, or is this just you speculating? This is me purely this? speculating. Um, mm. And you know what was really interesting? I don't know if you heard. I'm going to like give a little throw out to Nick Lott's podcast, but he had Rapoli on there and Rapoli was saying that 
He goes, what about Bob's owners? What about Bob's owners? He's like, I would never have moved my horses from Todd Pletcher if Todd was ruled out of the Derby. Now, when push comes to shove and $5 million is on the line, you know, that that makes a big difference. But according to Rapoli, at least a couple of weeks ago, if he was one of Bob's owners, he would not move mm-hmm. his horses. Um, I don't think they're going to go anywhere. I think they're going to stay with Bob. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, look, there's a lot of things we could say about this whole deal. Um, to me, I think uh, the extension of the ban of Baffert from two years, uh, which was open-ended, by the way, now to three years, which is also open-ended. Uh, I think I don't remember the exact wording that CDI used, but it, it was just I'm just kind of paraphrasing. They, they felt like that. Uh, I think their words were that Baffert wasn't, uh, you know, sufficiently apologetic or whatever it was, right? That he he hadn't sh- taken full responsibility, maybe. Uh, and I think that had everything to do with the fact that Amr Zidane still has lawsuits pending, appeals now against Churchill Downs for the Medina Spirit 2021 Kentucky Derby. And Churchill has spent... Uh, as has Baffert, as has Zidane, a ton of money on legal fees. And I think it pisses Churchill Downs off that they're still having to defend themselves in court and spend money on that. And I think that's why they feel like that uh, that Baffert and company have not been uh, taken sufficient responsibility. As far as this latest moving of the goalpost from Feb 28 last year to Jan 29 this year, in my opinion, I don't like it, but the reason why you're just now hearing about it is strategic. Because last year, Baffert challenged this in court. And as we all know, the wheels of justice tend to move pretty slowly. And by the time the judge finally got around to ruling on it, the judge said that in part, one of the reasons why the judge denied Baffert's appeal was that at that point, Plenty of Derby points had already accrued. And if you were to retroactively give Baffert sources the Derby points that they had been denied, then you would be bumping other innocent owners and trainers down the Derby list when they did nothing wrong. Okay, I think that's why Churchill waited so long to announce the changing of this date, Jan 29, because it's going to it's exactly the same scenario. If Baffert sues, then it's going to take time to wind through the court and you're going to have the same situation if a judge hears it in March or April uh, and they're going to say this really Bob's caught between a rock and a hard place here and uh, there's really nothing else he can do at this point except uh, to just uh, swallow and we'll see what the owners choose to do. Uh, Nysos, by the way, is not owned by Amherst Zidane. He's owned by uh, Charles and Susan Chu. Uh, Nysos is number one right now in the in the TDN top 12, arguably, you know, yearly Kentucky Derby favorite, although I think it should be fierceness. But uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. And Susan Chu from the Bomacorp absolutely loves Bob like he is her only trainer. So it, it'll be interesting and we're not going to have to wait long to find out. TD and Riders Room is brought to you by the PHBA, the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. One more reminder that the 2024 PSR PA Bread Stallion Series nominations for Foals of 22 being taken right now. The $200 fee is due by Jan 31. If you wait till after Jan 31, the fee goes up 
to $500. Meanwhile, the 2024 PHBA annual stallion season auction on thoroughbred.com opened on Monday. It will continue to next Monday, the 21st. The list of 100 plus seasons available uh, represents Pennsylvania, Maryland, New York, Florida, Kentucky. If you're breeding in 2024, take a look at this. Foal and register in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania paid $30 million in state incentives in 2023, so don't get left out. If you're interested further in breeding in Pennsylvania, you can go to the 2024 Stallion and Boarding Farm Directory, which is available at the PHBA website at www.pabread.com. PA Bread, I think we've built a, a brand at this point. The state of Pennsylvania has the best breeders program in the entire United States. Angel of Empire wins the Arkansas Derby and wins it clear. Caravelle in the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint. Pennsylvania and the PHBA have the best state bred program in the country, bar none. The best Breeders' Awards and Stallion Awards in the country. The best two-year-old by legendary sire, Quality Road. In about a million five. Very, very impressive debut. Cantering home could not have been more impressive. Coast to coast in the American Pharaoh. He's the real deal. Undefeated and unchallenged at two. He's just too good. He wins the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Cornish. Cornish. It's Eclipse Award time, and what better time to look back on a past winner now at stud? And where better to start with than the 2021 Eclipse champion juvenile, Corniche? Corniche was an unbeaten dual Group 1 winning champion by Quality Road. He was a $1.5 million sales topper. And his Breeders' Cup juvenile time at Del Mar was four-fifths of a second faster than the only other juvenile held at Del Mar, won by Good Magic in 2017. Zoe Kevin, I know you worked with Marette Farrell, a bloodstock agent, in the purchase of this horse for $1.5 million. It's now going on to a stallion career. What can you tell us? I mean, honestly, I could wax lyrical for about the next 45 minutes about Corniche, especially from the first day we saw him. When we worked the two-year-old sales, it was the April two-year-old sale. I'm in the grandstand. Moret's um, down on the turn, and we have Tesha von Blucher on the backside. And I watched him work, and I, I was just in wow. He just had a stride like you wouldn't believe. Now, that was on the safe track. He showed what he can do on dirt. He was never headed as a two-year-old. Now, he had some niggling issues that kept him pretty much out of his three-year-old season, and then he was retired. But as a two-year-old on dirt, never headed, not once, just the most beautiful mover. I mean, he's by Quality Road, one of the best sires in the world, in my opinion. And the fact that we only saw him run on the dirt, I think he's going to be a great sire on turf as well. Sky's the limit. He had length depth, and he was cat-like, probably one of the most athletic horses I've ever seen. Cornish's first falls are arriving this week. He stands at Coolmore for $25,000. Meanwhile, it is time for the Green Group Guest of the Week. The TD and Riders are brought to you by the Green Group, that tax accounting and advisory firm that specializes in the thoroughbred industry and especially specializes, is that redundant, in saving you money on your taxes. And we welcome in now our Green Group Guest of the Week. His name is Alan Foreman. 
He's got fancy titles like General Counsel of the State Horsemen's Association. He's a member of the Maryland Racing uh, Thoroughbred Operating Authority. But let's just call him Mr. Maryland Racing because nobody has their finger on the pulse uh, about what's going on in Maryland, more so than Alan Foreman. And lots of big news out of Maryland within the last week or so. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief here because we want to get right to Alan. Um, there's been some problems in the state. Uh, the Stronic Group slash First Racing was not necessarily committed to the future of racing in Maryland. So the government got together and put together what they call the Maryland Thoroughbred Operating Authority. That's a mouthful, Maryland Thoroughbred Operating Authority. They came out with an advisory which calls for closing Pimico, rebuilding, excuse me, closing Laurel, rebuilding Pimico, and then building a training center at a site to be uh, unknown, uh, not yet known. Um, Alan, exciting times for Maryland racing as all this comes to be, but two-part question, what uh, obstacles or legislative hurdles are in remain to be clear? And also, where is the money for this coming from? So just a little bit of history, if I could, Bill. Um, <clears throat> this is an outgrowth of a concept plan that was proposed for Maryland uh, five years ago. Uh, the uh, Stranach Group had sought to move the Preakness from Pimlico to Laurel to shutter Pimlico because they felt that there was no commitment from the state and they certainly weren't going to improve Pimlico and it needed massive work. And so the city of Baltimore brought a lawsuit against the Stranach Group to condemn Pimlico and the Preakness through eminent domain and to take control. Uh, there was an effort to settle that lawsuit. I participated in the small group that was asked to help to negotiate a settlement. And what came out of that was a concept plan originally that would re completely rebuild Pimlico, but only for purposes of the Preakness and perhaps one other small meet, but, but uh, particularly the Preakness. Pimlico would be commercially redeveloped and racing would be consolidated in Maryland at Laurel with Laurel Park being rebuilt. The cost of that project was estimated to be $375 million financed through the issuance of bonds by the Maryland Stadium Authority, municipal bonds, and through industry money, not state money, primarily industry money and some money from the city of Baltimore would pay for the, uh, the debt service on the bonds. That was the plan for Maryland. It ran into substantial roadblocks, uh, COVID, supply chain issues, uh, rising costs, interest rates, and a massive tax issue related to Laurel that made it uh, very difficult to even consider improvements at Laurel. But then when the Maryland Stadium Authority went in to investigate the Laurel property, they determined that Laurel was probably in as bad, if not worse shape, than Pimlico and that the cost to rebuild Laurel was double what we estimated. So the project completely stalled and Maryland was continuing uh, to wrestle with what the future would look like. Um, one of the, uh, the ideas that was floated was the idea of creating what is now the Maryland Thoroughbred Racetrack Operating Authority. The legislature created that authority in its session last year and the authority was given the power to number one, take over the tracks if necessary take over the tracks if the Strana Group intended to uh, to substantially reduce live racing in Maryland, but also to investigate and to take over the plan that it stalled, look for better options, which led to um, actually Laurel not being considered as a racing operation because of its cost. Consolidation at Pimlico is the hub, and because Pimlico is not big enough 
to construct a training center that would complement the Pimlico property. But unbelievably, Pimlico became the hub property for this project and working with the stadium authority and other experts that we work with over the past six months, we have a plan to go forward uh, and it w- is within range of the cost of the bonds that were initially authorized by the Maryland General Assembly. So that's the genesis of this project going forward. And uh, it's a mountain of work that's been done in the last six months, but now the rubber hits the road. Wow, that's that's an awful lot of work. What? I'm obviously, I like Maryland. I'm wearing my Maryland jumper right here. Mm-hmm. Everyone, everyone can see my Preakness jumper here, but... What is your actual role in this? How much input are you allowed to have? Are you there purely on the the law side of things? Do you have an actual say in where things should be moved? Like what input are you having into this other than like holding the law? Well, it's got uh, actually I'm not doing the legal part of it. That's for somebody who's got a higher pay grade than I do to do. But I've been intimately involved in the personally been intimately involved in the project since day one. We started with the negotiations over the concept plan. You know, the MTHA, the organization that I represent, and I'm their representative on the authority, has been working with the architectural team, the design team and the Maryland Stadium Authority for the past four years. The problem is the project has changed so many times that it it had become, particularly for the stadium authority and the design team, very frustrating. And I I think they probably felt that we were at a complete roadblock with how to carry the project forward. Uh, I'm just as intimately involved at the authority level, working at every aspect of it with the uh, design, well, there'll be a formal design team. I assume it'll be the same as um, who has worked with us up until this point, Populous, which is, I, I think, the best design team in the world for uh, these kinds of venues. Um, working with Crossroads, who were the consultants who were brought in to do the economic analysis. Working with uh, Greg Cross, the chair of the authority, who's just been uh, spectacular. And the other members of, members of the authority, some of whom you may know, Tom Rooney, uh, who is uh, you know president and CEO of the National Thoroughbred Racing Association, but an owner and breeder in Maryland. And there are a, a number of other really distinguished members of the Maryland community who've been working on this. But um, no, uh, we are intimately involved in this on a day-to-day basis. And as many people know, I've been living Maryland racing for over 40 years. And it's, it's, the, it's the one thing that's really dearest to my heart and uh, to see a project that may cement the future of Maryland racing for decades to come is you, you can't top that. Alan, one of the angles to this or one of the side stories is the Preakness and the Black Eyed Susan. Now, uh, under this plan, the Stronach Group is going to leave town, pack their bags and leave town. A uh, new organization, which uh, apparently is going to be structured along the lines of the New York Racing Association, would take over. But uh, the Stronach Group is going to hold on to the, um, the, the intellectual property that is the Black Eyed Susan and the Preakness and then lease it back to the new racetrack. Uh, owner or operator. Um, I, I think a lot of people are asking the same question. I don't quite understand how that's going to work. Um, what kind of money might change hands? Um, the betting handle on Preakness Day, does that go to Stronach? Does it go to the new authority? Um, are, have all those details been worked out? And if so, what does it look like in a broader sense? So there's a framework for an agreement, what you would, I guess, consider to be a term sheet that is now being negotiated between the state and the Stronach group. And it's 
Um, I think it's estimated that that agreement will be finalized within the next 30 to 60 days. It's critical that that agreement be finalized because we have started the legislative session. Legislative leadership, the governor, are going to be very interested in the outcome of those negotiations. But I think both sides are confident that they will um, you know, come to a final written agreement because the ink is not dry on this deal and there are still um, matters to be negotiated. But the the framework is that because uh, the Stronax own the rights to the Preakness, they will license the event to the state of Maryland and the state of Maryland will, and through the not-for-profit, will run the Preakness. Okay, the division of revenues is being negotiated. It will be a fair agreement to both sides, one that I think will be in both parties' best interest going forward. Can you talk about um, the new training centers you're talking about? I, I gather there are three places that you're looking at right now. There are there are three locations that have made what I would consider to be the cut for further investigation. We've looked at 10 properties. We've been scouring the state for potential training sites for the better part of two years, working with the stadium authority and the, the design team. And the reason for that is when it became apparent that Laurel was probably not feasible for racing and or as a training center and knowing that Pimlico is not big enough to consolidate Maryland racing. It's a much smaller piece of property. The footprint just doesn't allow for consolidation. Um, we had to start thinking about the possibility of a um, of a, a world-class training center. There are three sites that have made the final cut, although it doesn't, I guess, foreclose the possibility that another site could come on online, but they are Bowie Racecourse, the, what was then the Bowie Training Center for years, but no longer exists as a training center. And under the original concept plan, the Stronex were going to donate that property to the city of Bowie to be used as ball fields for Bowie State University, which didn't have adequate athletic facilities. We've been able to claw that property back through the legislation that created the authority last year but it's it's a it's a it's a project there that is uh, that has pros and it has cons and there are difficulties with that site. We've also are looking at two other sites. One is Shamrock Farm, which is owned by the Rooney family. It's where uh, the Rooney family's breeding operation in Maryland was for decades. But um, we had heard actually through one of the Maryland horse breeders that they were closing down the breeding operation, and so the authority inquired of the family as to whether or not. It would be willing to allow that property to be considered as a training center, and that is currently being investigated. It's an um, idyllic property. It is Its location to Pimlico is ideal. Um, there are pros and cons with that location. And then there's one other site that is north of Baltimore, about 20 miles in Aberdeen, off the Susquehanna River. It's a commercial development project underway right now, mostly commercial warehouses, but it's a beautiful piece of property, um, but it would force the horsemen now, most of whom live in the Laurel area uh, towards Washington, D.C., Southern Maryland, many of them to have to re relocate to the northern northern portion of Maryland, and that, um, that could present challenges. We looked at Fair Hill. We looked at Timonium. We looked at the Naval Academy Dairy Farm. Uh, we looked at Laurel. Um, there were about 10 locations. Um, it's not an easy project to find the land that works for this and that wouldn't be community opposition or political opposition or you name it. So, but we've narrowed down to three. And um, the critical part of the project is that while Pimlico is being constructed, 
We also have to construct the training center because they are going to go in tandem. You can't have one without the other. And during the period of construction, we will continue to race at Laurel probably for the next four years until the project is completed. What about, I gather there's a problem with uh, housing for the backstretch workers. Housing is a, is, is a major challenge. And when, when we did the original concept plan, we knew that housing was going to be a problem, whether it was Laurel because the housing at Laurel needed to be rebuilt or whether we were going to do any at Pimlico. And that's before the concept of the training center uh, came about. Uh, it's expensive. It's necessary. Um, we've got to uh, backstretch housing has to be a part of this project where this project cannot be completed. I think there was some uh, concern after the meeting we had with the horsemen last week that we were not looking at housing for the backstretch workers. That is absolutely not the case. There are many challenges when you're building housing in a community um, and you have to work through those problems. Uh, we are working through them and I'm confident that the project will include housing both for Pimlico and the training center. The unique thing about Pimlico is because there's going to be a um, redevelopment of the area beyond the Pimlico footprint, we're looking at incorporating backstretch housing in that redeveloped footprint that is uh, we're engaged with with the city of Baltimore and um, and other groups in the area. And I think that could be a really exciting opportunity for backstretch housing. Alan, I want to switch gears here on you and move on to subject number two. Uh, you were recently named as the ombudsman for uh, Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. Um, just basically tell me what that means. What, what is your job doing that? My job is uh, to interface between the industry stakeholders, the individual, what we call the covered persons, and HISA and HIWU. I am the person that the groups in the industry, individuals in the industry can turn to when they need advice, when they need direction, when they need to understand the process, when they need to understand the rules, when they need somebody to advocate for them, whether it's individual or groups, and to, to, um, to you know, work with HISA and HIWU on necessary policy changes, rule changes, concerns that, that I'm hearing that I can convey to them and to... Um, essentially be a buffer for both sides and in some instances be able to mediate uh, cases where there have been charges brought against horsemen in an effort to try to bring them to a quick and satisfactory resolution. And how's that been going? Can you name some that you've managed to to fix, so to speak? Well, I can't name, I, I can't mention individual cases because, you know, I work right. under the cloak of confidentiality. I can tell you that it's been a, it's been a massive undertaking. I felt it's something that uh, the industry needed. They, uh, Heise and Heise certainly felt it was something the industry needed. And, and I think they felt that, that I could fill that role. Um, I have been successful in effectuating rule changes, some policy changes, some process changes, one of which um, I think, you know, that will probably be announced within the next week regarding um, further changes to the manner in which Heise and Heise are handling um, drugs that of illicit use that are being abused, that are finding their way into uh, horses, cocaine, methamphetamine, fentanyls, the, the drugs that are ubiquitous in, in human society that are finding their way into horses. If there's one area that really has been troubling the industry, it's been the handling of these kinds of cases 
provisional suspensions for trainers, um, the high hurdle to overcome what is a contamination situation that it's hard for horsemen to establish how the drug got into the horse. And um, there, there really has been, um, I, I think, a sea change in Heise and Highway's thinking that is, I think, going to calm the situation down. One of the things that I would tell you that has surprised me is that I, I would have expected when the new anti-doping program went into effect that there would be um, a, a cascade of positive, tre- uh, uh, positive tests in the controlled substances area, the therapeutic substances, because they back the they're not withdrawal times, but they back the administration times out because of the, um, you know, we were going to um, uh, you know, different detection levels uh, and um, it didn't happen. It has not happened. The failure rate has been very consistent, if not better than what we had seen prior to Heise and Hiru, which means that the industry has adjusted to these massive changes and they've done it well. The um, the bigger problem has been in the banned substances area. That's what gets the most attention in the media. It seems to be what upsets the horsemen the most. And I've actually seen a dramatic drop in those cases over the past couple of months also. You know, this program's only been effect, in effect since May. And so I, I think they expected there were going to be bumps in the road. Um, I had a massive amount of work when I started this um, program, but it has calmed down substantially. And I think that's because the industry is adapting to the system and Heise and high are starting to make necessary changes. Alan, you kind of already answered my question, but I want to go back to this. Um, to me, I look at, you know, I look at the, the um, website almost every day, the Haiwu website about see if there are any new names are up there. But by and large, people that have gotten these provisional suspensions for uh, always banned substances um, are not people who cheat. They just don't. I mean, you have a guy with four horses wins three races a year at the rate of 7%. The person isn't a cheater. Um Yet these things have, have come down on them with these drugs, like you said, that are almost have to be environmental contamination. And then these people's, uh, uh, you know, lives are upended and in some cases been suspended for, for uh, two years. Um, is Heisen now ready? I, you know, I, to me, that that portion of the system is broken. Is Heise ready now to roll up its sleeves and say, we've got to do better with this? And, you know, innocent people cannot continue to keep getting uh, suspensions. Yeah, the answer is yes. And those changes are already in motion. And there are some changes that have been made, but they needed further changes. And to their credit, they've accepted those changes. So um, in the banned substances area, there was what was called a provisional suspension. If you had a banned substance, you were immediately told that you were suspended pending further investigation and in the banned substance area, ultimately an arbitration proceeding. The rub was clearly with these drugs of illicit human use that were finding their way into horses. And so the first change that HISA made was to um, not impose a provisional suspension immediately, allow the trainer to get the B sample tested and allow for a period of investigation. The problem continued to be that the rules require the trainer to establish that it's more likely than not that it was contamination. And they have to provide some information or evidence to support the notion that it was contamination and not an intentional administration. From my own point of view, in the decades that I've been doing this, I've never seen an intentional administration of a cocaine or a methamphetamine, and there wouldn't be a reason to do it. 
And so the the industry pre-HISA, HIRU, did a very good job of handling this case. And so as you indicate, this was something that was not broken and needed to be fixed. And somehow in the new system, it got broken. And fortunately, it's being fixed under new rule changes that we're waiting for the Federal Trade Commission to approve. The um, HIWU will have the discretion now to determine that it is more likely than not that it was contamination um, or inadvertent exposure, as we like to call it, and not an intentional administration. And the penalties have been substantially reduced. Pre this rule change that's coming, the penalty could be up to a two-year suspension and a $25,000 fine plus arbitration. Now the penalty will not exceed 60 days. And if there is a showing to the satisfaction of HIWU that there is a likelihood that it was contamination and not an intentional administration, that can be mitigated down to a uh, handling that is very similar to the way the racing commissions handled it before now. So it's taken time. It's taken um you know, some some troubling situations to get it done. But I think the fix now will solve this particular problem. But the last, uh, last thing I would say about this, the, the single biggest problem that I see, and I think Highway and Heiser are seeing, is when trainers get notice of violations, some of them are not responding. And if they don't respond to the notice, if they don't provide information, if they don't call me and let me explain to them what to do, if they don't hire a lawyer or they don't follow through, they're going to get suspended because it's essentially a de default. And so the onus is on the horseman to provide an explanation as best that person, that individual can. Even if he doesn't know or she doesn't know how it got into the horse, explain the circumstances and let uh, under the new system, Highway will have the ability now to exercise discretion, which it didn't have before. Uh, or didn't choose to exercise to um, to resolve these cases. So um, fortunately, this this is this, there's going to be a big change here. Alan, one more before we let you go. Any thoughts on the ongoing Bob Baffert saga? Which I was just going to ask that <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because you were on this in 2022, and I was not on it. And you you guys were talking about it, and here we are in 2024. Mm -hmm. We're still talking about it. They're moving the goalposts. You know, I, I think that um, I've said since day one, I've missed I've been mystified at the way this has been handled. OK, my training, my work, and I've prosecuted probably more cases than I've defended in my career is if the drug is present in the horse, if the drug is a we don't use we didn't use the word banned substance before that forbidden substance, even if it's therapeutic. OK, it's a violation. And that's been I felt that way since day one, regardless of circumstances. If you went into a drugstore and you bought a bottle of aloe vera with lidocaine and you rubbed it on the horse because it, it, it had some kind of, um, you know, uh, burn or irritation, that lidocaine is going to get into the bloodstream. That is going to create a positive test. And it's a violation of the rules. So using whether it's a topical beta-methasone or it's an injectable, it doesn't matter. It's that the drug was administered to the horse in violation of the rules and it's present in the horse. And that to me, um, you know, the, the exercise is, is it there? How did it get there? When did it get there? And how much was the horse treated with? And if it's a positive, it's a positive. To be talking about this three years after the fact is... You know, it, it just doesn't yeah, make any my, sense. My point, 
My point to this is that Bob served his time. He did his two years. It seems like Churchill is moving the goalposts. They're never going to let him back in. Uh, I can't speak to the relationship between and Bob and Churchill, but it strikes me that's more personal than it is substantive right. with regards to the positive test itself. But look, this was not a doping violation. Okay, this was a therapeutic medication, a controlled therapeutic medication. There are rules for those controlled therapeutic medications. It was in the horse. The horse has to be disqualified. You can argue about penalty, but I would it would just shock me if um, uh, uh, some court subsequently would determine that um, the rule was not violated and it's not a positive test. And I don't expect that to happen. And and, uh, it's just unfortunate. It just it really is just so unfortunate. I wish that Bob had taken his medicine and just moved on. Very good. Well, Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Boy, you got a busy uh, full plate right now with everything that's going on with Pimico and with Heisa and Hairu. And I always love to get your insights, particularly on Maryland racing. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll catch up with you again soon. Thank you. As the Green Group Guest of the Week, Mr. Alan Foreman will receive a free one-hour tax consultation with the Green Group. Even lawyers can use tax consultation. For more information on how the Green Group can save you money on your taxes, visit www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonderwheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. With some of the fullest fields in the country and quality racing year-round, there's never been a better time to reap the rewards of breeding and racing in Kentucky. Purse money in Kentucky is at an all-time high, as is average purse per race, outpacing California, Florida, and New York. Kentucky Breads. Breed them. Raise them. Race them. We all win. It should come as no surprise that in TDN's very first Derby Top 12, every horse on the list, all 12, bred in the state of Kentucky. From number one, Nisos, all the way down to number 12, Carbone. And 25 of the 33 Eclipse Award divisional finalists, including Archangelo, Cody's Wish, Elite Power, Fierceness, and more, also bred in the Bluegrass State. On the other side of the world now, the meeting in Maidan is underway, and Kentucky Derby breds there our regular visitors to the winter circle, such as last Friday, Kentucky bred twos by Oxbow took home the trophy in the group three Dubawi stakes. Kentucky breads, breed them, raise them, race them. We all win. But first things first. Absolutely. And this week I caught up with jockey Emily Ellingwood, White Abario, and the rest 
of the connections on perhaps one of the most beautiful days I have seen at Santa Anita in quite some time. Hey, Em. I'm great. How are you? Good. Ready to roll? How far are we going? A half out five. All right. Gallop out as far as we want. this journey has been for you from the beginning. Show horse girl, learn to gallop horses, jockey to this handsome boy over here. How's it been for you? It's pretty exciting. It's been quite a journey. Um, you know, I've just been galloping, trying to work hard and get mounts as a jockey. And uh, this opportunity came up and I couldn't pass it up. So. Um, I'm really grateful for the connections and the and Doug O'Neill especially for recommending me as a rider for this wonderful horse. Um, he's honestly a great horse to get on in the morning. He pretty much trains himself and just takes me along for the ride. So it's yeah, I always look forward to riding him in the morning. Okay, cool. <laughs> he's a little bit spoiled, is he's he just, not? Just a little bit. You won the Breeders' Cup Classic. That was awesome. But now you're looking towards a $20 million race. You, you've got to feel excited. We're, we're real excited, you know, and the, the purse is exciting in itself, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, we're really excited to see what this horse does at a mile and an eighth, one turn. We think that is uh, right in his wheelhouse. All right, Chipper, he looked great out there. Just what you wanted? Yes, yes, we were very happy with uh, his breeze um, makes it look easy. Uh, we know uh, just by watching Emily um, with her smile after the breeze, we know that uh, she's very happy with him. That's our that's our cue is uh, Emily's smile, and we got that today, so we're very everybody's happy. How important has Emily been since she's been getting on White Barrio prior to the Breeders' Cup? She seems like she's fitted right into the Dutch Road team. Yes. Yeah, she's, uh, these two are uh, a great team. They, it's like 1-1-A, one one Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Uh, just, they know each other so well. They, I mean, they're in love with each other. It's a great story. How was his work this morning, Em? It was great. Uh, we went a half out five. Uh, he galloped out really strong. Um, I went to pull up to jog him off and workers came by and he tried to take off again. So that's always a good sign. Um, and if I had let him, he probably would, would have gone around again. Roberto, the groom of White Barrio. What an asset he is. Best horse ever. Yeah, I like that horse. It's the rest of the world now. <laughs> what about his work this morning? I noticed you gave him a candy right after. Yeah. I give it candy every day, I give it candy after they win the, the big race. He loves the candy. Oh yeah, he wants a piece of the doodle. <laughs> Betty, you better keep walking, otherwise you'll get me into trouble. <laughs> yeah, keep walking. Many thanks to all the connections there, and we look forward to seeing White Abario in the Saudi Cup. Do want to remind you that we race on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, post time 12.30 on Friday. It's free Fridays, free to get in and free parking. 
$3 beers and $5 margaritas to have some stakes action this weekend as well with the Astra Stakes on Sunday going a mile and a half on the grass and the La Cañada on Saturday. Well, so far as this weekend's racing goes, uh, the uh, tension is going to be focused primarily on the fairgrounds where there's several stakes, a bunch of them preps for the uh, major races coming up on Louisiana Derby Day. And three-year-old fillies, newly turned three-year-old fillies, will go in the Silver Bullet Day Stakes. It's the 10th race. Fairgrounds, not the strongest field you'll ever see. Looks like West Omaha, uh, trained by Brad Cox, coming off a second-place finish in the Unpappable with a 81 buyer will certainly be the favorite and the one to beat. But how about this horse, Miss Code West, the queen of Oklahoma. Oklahoma bred is undefeated in four career starts. Buyer number of 79 beating open company last time out at Remington Park for trainer Kevin Scholl. We'll see what happens with that horse. A $12,000 purchase at the sales. Boy, for 12000 you certainly got a runner there. But uh, Zoe, what do you think about the Silver Bullet Day Stakes? Hey, good horses can come from anywhere. If you've got a horse that's won four in a row, kudos to them. Congrats to Kevin Skull, the trainer, and uh, all the owners, Jeff and Julie Purrier. Miss Code West certainly looks like one to beat. Yes, she got it done last time in open company, but, I mean, that was Remington Park. She's won short, she's won long, and she's won in the mud. So she's done just about everything, but she is going to have to have her running shoes on to beat West Omaha. Louis Saez will pick up the mount, be the fourth different rider. Why can't Brad Cox keep a rider? It's like mm -hmm. the best, best trainer in the country. Why can he not keep a rider on this filly? Well, you know, what's, what's especially interesting here is that Joel Rosario rode West Omaha in the untappable at the fairgrounds. Right. And Rosario now in this race is on perfect shot for Steve Asmussen, uh, the son of Gunrunner, who gets post number one. Now, we, as we all know, right. a variety of circumstances could have taken place there, right? Ron Anderson might not have known that West Omaha was going to go in this race until he'd already committed to perfect shot. We don't know what happens until we talk to the agent. But I think it comes down to those two. You know, kudos to Miss Code West for being four for four. But if you go back and you look at all of the races run on Oklahoma Derby Day at Remington Park on December the 15th. It was a very, very, in my opinion, biased racetrack toward early speed and rail. And that's exactly what Miss Code West had. And I think that might have played at least in part to that 79 buyer speed figure. West Omaha, to me, there's a little more in the tank. Three wide on both turns, race kind of green, had her head up kind of high. Uh, I think she's eligible to improve. She also hopped back to her left lead late in the race. So, you know, very inexperienced looking in that race. And I'm expecting her to uh, to be really tough to beat with any kind of forward move here. Twelfth race at the fairgrounds on Saturday is Louisiana Stakes, a grade three. Once again, Brad Cox is front and center with Saudi Crown, the winner of the Pennsylvania Derby. Uh, then ran a poor race in the Breeders' Cup Classic 10th. Beaten 12 and three quarter lengths. Uh, Ferrant Giroux will ride. Uh, Smile Happy is a horse that ran a big 110 buyer in the Alley Sheba two starts back. A couple other nice horses in here. I'm a little surprised Saudi Crown wasn't pointed 
for the Pegasus World Cup. That's such a wide open race. Um, and with no big superstars coming into the race this year, I would have think that horse, uh, would have a, would have had a chance in that race. But if Saudi Crown, the question is, does he run back to his Pennsylvania Derby? He was an up and coming horse at that point, ran second in the Jim Dandy, beaten only a nose by Forte. He's got a lot of quality. Uh, Brad Cox certainly knows what he's doing and, um, you know, I'd like to get a little bit more clever and adventurous here, but to me, Saudi Crown, uh, Randy, once again, is the horse to beat. Yeah, uh, he was on the invitation list, and he still is uh, right now as we sit here, as we tape this. He is among the top 12 listed invitees for the Pegasus World Cup. But here's what's going on there. Saudi Crown is owned by Faisal Mohammed al Qatani of Saudi Arabia. The primary goal for this horse is to get to and to win the Saudi Cup. That is the number one emphasis for Saudi Crown. And they even talked about that even last fall before the Breeders' Cup Classic. So Cox had his choice. He could keep this horse at home at the fairgrounds where he's stable, get a nice, hopefully easy prep race into him, although this has turned out to be a really tough spot, uh, to move him forward to get ready for the Saudi Cup as opposed to shipping uh, you know, to Gulfstream Park and in, 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 uh, t- taking on a, a tougher field in the Pegasus World Cup. So this is designed to be a prep for Saudi Crown, and that's why he's not in the Pegasus World Cup. Now, uh, if, let's say, they get a horribly sloppy racetrack or something at the fairgrounds, that's why Brad Cox told the people at Gulfstream to keep him on the invitation list for the Pegasus World Cup as a backup uh, you never know what's going to happen between now and Saturday at the fairgrounds. But that's the only chance we'll see Saudi Crown uh, at Gulfstream. Smile Happy uh, is capable of running a huge race. I was kind of surprised not to see him in the Pegasus World Cup as well. But this has turned out to be, a uh, between those two especially, but uh, some others, a really, really good race for $175,000. I'm just checking the weather. It's going to be beautiful on Saturday at the fairgrounds, a low of 30, a high of 45. No rain in the forecast whatsoever. So it looks like it's good. Um, What about Five Star General? What a cool horse he is. Now, eight years old. He's won 11 of 33 lifetime starts, and he likes the fairgrounds. I'm going to shove him in there as a long shot. 13th race on the card, the LeCompte on the road to the Louisiana Derby, grade three, with a purse of $200,000. And, you know, the horse, whether he wins or not, uh, from a handicapping standpoint, uh, you got to figure out Nash. Uh, I remember he won that race at Churchill on November 12th by 10 and a quarter lengths, got a 97 buyer. Uh, a lot of people were talking about him as being uh, coming into the three-year-old season and one of the, the real horses to watch. Didn't run terrible in the gun runner, but at odds of one to two, he was pretty flat. Ran third, beaten three lengths. Does he bounce back to his prior race where he ran a 97 buyer, or does he run back to the gun runner uh, where he was beaten by Track Phantom, trained by Steve Asmussen, and he'll take that horse on again in this uh, race? Uh, uh, for our old friend John Green, can groups kind of interesting. Horses has three straight pretty good races, including the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Turf, where he finished fourth. But can he do that on the dirt? So, I, guys, I'm not going to come back with Nash. I'm not off that race. Um, uh, I'll I'll go with Track Phantom for now. I think he's the best of this group. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't disagree with you there for trainer Asmussen, who keeps Rosario, gets Rosario back aboard this one. He 
broke this horse's maiden by four and a half. I mean, Brett Cox has got many ways to go. He's got several entrants in here. He's got Nash. He has Ethan Energy. And then at the outside, he has Awesome Road, who just broke the maiden and was thrown into grade one company. So I'm not sure all three will run, but um, I think Track Phantom may be the best of them. It, it comes down to which Nash we're going to see. It, it's very interesting yeah. when you look at the horse's past performances. Is he a one-dimensional front runner? I mean, it, 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 is he going? It is the only scenario in which he's going to run a race like he ran at Churchill Downs? I got that ninety-seven buyer speed figure. Is you know, when he's on an uncontested early lead. I mean, we don't know that much about the horse at this point in his career. I know he had no ex real tangible excuse as the one to two favorite in the gun runner in the running of the race. Possibly he made a little bit of a premature move into a fast pace. He went the second quarter in 22.95 seconds. It was a pretty hot pace in that race, but then he just kind of, you know, came up empty. Brad was disappointed. There was nothing in the race. There was nothing after the race that they found to give him any kind of a legitimate excuse. So it's just, uh, you know, running back in the Lecompte and, uh, and see where you're at. Track Phantom's win in the Gunrunner was pretty remarkable. Uh, and Asmussen talked about this immediately after the race. You just don't see horses at the fairgrounds typically go a half in 46.93 seconds on the engine. And he was really shaken up at the gate. He was really put on the engine to make the lead early in that race and got involved in a speed duel. You typically don't see horses then fight off the posse coming down the lane in uh, in graded stakes competition. So Track Fanna managed to do that. He held on tenaciously to win. Uh, and so he's even, I think, a little bit better than that 89 buyer speed figure that he got in that particular race. So, Bill, I agree that Track Fanna is the horse to beat. And the horse that dueled with him last time is back in the race next level. And he, again, like the gun runner, draws the number one post position but the blinkers come off next level for Keith DeSormo. And having tried to go to the lead last time, and they did hustle him last time, and engaged in a duel with Track Phantom, it didn't end well. The horse got beat 32 and a quarter lengths. So you'd have to think they're going to change strategy this time with next level. And looking at the past performances, that gives Track Phantom, the way I look at it, uh, probably an uncontested lead. So he's going to be double tough to beat, I think, in that regard. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV. The XBTV workout of the week is Newgrange, who turned in a four furlong work in 48 flat for Train and Phil D'Amato on Saturday. This is him going solo with Tony aboard him. Now he manages to track some Leo Pal trainees. And I can honestly say... I've never seen him look as good as he looks right now. He won the San Antonio Stakes in his last start on opening day and is pointed towards the January 27th Pegasus at Gulfstream Park. He opened up his 2023 season, in case you're wondering, with a win in the Grade 2 San Pasquale Stakes. We'll see him at the Pegasus in just a couple weeks. All the thrills. Fraction of the Bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. 
The TDN Writers Room brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. West Point, the co-owner of the Undefeated Integration, who is approaching his biggest challenge so far in his young career. He's scheduled to run in the $1 million Pegasus World Cup turf on January 27th at Gulfstream Park. He'll probably be the second betting favorite, I'm thinking, in that race. Warm Heart is expected to run from Coolmore and Aiden O'Brien. Warm Heart was second in the uh, Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare turf. So those look like the two favorites, but integration in there with a really good chance having an impressive win in the Hill Prince in his last start. He also won the Virginia Derby before that. The Pegasus World Cup, his very first grade one start, Tyler Gaffleone has the mount again for integration. If you are interested in joining a West Point partnership, bless you, Zoe, and perhaps being vaulted into the world of instant camaraderie, go to westpointtb.com. Well, that's a wrap on this week's show. I want to thank the entire team, my partners, Randy Moss, and Zoe Cabman, our producers, Katie Petruniak and Anthony LaRocca, and our editors, Leah LaRocca and Nathan Wilkinson. Where's Where's Lucy? Hi, ah, where's Lucy? There she is. There she is. Uh, hi, Lucy. Hi, Lucy. Okay. And of course, our mascot, Randy Moss's very own Lucy. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.